0: Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is um, my longtime friend, Mark Matheson. Welcome to the podcast, Mark.
1: Oh, it's great to be in your home, Dick. Thank you.
0: Mark and I go back to um, probably my single-digit days, Um, 10 or younger. um, When I lived in Salt Lake City, Mark is slightly older than me, best friend of my older brother, Dave. And we have stayed in contact for the 40 years since then. We are both now in our late 50s or nearly 60s. And so we're two older guys um, on the podcast today. But I think what Mark has to share will be very helpful for our listeners. Mark and I both graduated from Highland High. Mark um, then went on to the U after serving a mission. Where did you serve your mission?
1: Geneva, Switzerland.
0: Um, Mark is a graduate from the University of Utah in chemical engineering, then he went to Harvard, got an MBA at Harvard, and then got a doctorate in the University of Phoenix in organizational leadership. Mark has had a career as a stock analyst um, for 25 years, and then um, has been doing a, a lot of teaching since about 2010. He taught for eight years at Southern Virginia University as a visiting professor Um, That was just an unpaid um, labor of love for the students at Southern Virginia University. Marcus taught at BYU-Hawaii and University of Phoenix. He is an active member of the church. He serves in many ways. He's especially connected to the YSAs, and some of the content in this podcast will be for YSAs. One of the things he's done is he's um, taught institute at the prison at the point of the mountain here in Salt Lake City for about 17 years um, Mark is married, uh, Mark's, um, divorce from his first wife. He may touch upon that. Um, some of you have gone through a divorce. We don't talk about that very much in our culture and maybe we can do a better job of ministering to those that go through a divorce. Mark then married Kathleen and my wife and I, Sheila and Mark and Kathleen were all living together in Orange County in the same ward in 1992 and then tragedy stuck struck Uh, Mark's family where his wife, Kathleen, and Mark's two-month-old son, Brennan, were killed in a car accident. That's 28 years ago. Mark has since remarried and has um, four living children and 10 grandchildren, more on the way. So that's a little bit of an overview. I wanted to also, in the way of overview, give you um, an idea of the things we're going to discuss. Often when my guests come to the podcast, I ask them to give me in advance, maybe two to four questions, I can ask them that draw out the things that they'd like to share. And Mark's done that. And I'll go ahead and just, well, let me first ask if there's anything correct on the bio, Mark.
1: Uh, Maybe a couple things to add.
0: Add some things.
1: Good. Um, I I taught at Education Week uh, for four years. And that was fun. And um, at BYU-Hawaii, I gave a lecture once that they recorded and put on YouTube and it has a great title that may catch What's the interest the of listeners. Make God Your Business Partner. I love that. So go to YouTube, search for Mark Matheson, BYU Hawaii. I'm not the hockey player that scored that great goal. That's the other Mark Matheson. Uh, but look at that, and I tell some great stories. Like I tell a great story about uh, President Monson and Elder Scott, and especially I, I've always had an interest in the pre ecclesiastical life uh, of our General Authorities, what they did in the business world and how they used the Spirit in their uh, pre-General Authority life. And then uh, I also do, uh, I'm now, I noticed tomorrow, I will have done my 1,400 posting on Instagram and Facebook. I do, I have two uh, handles, scripture analyst and conference analyst. So every day I post, uh, uh a little insightful question about a scripture verse and then uh a little analysis of of uh, of a conference or some other type of uh leadership uh uh tidbits so uh those are two things I enjoy doing now. I haven't written a book like you have i'm i'm interested i'm interested to see your book coming out this fall haven't done that but uh I've now made fourteen hundred plus posts uh, I think that's a book. <laughs>
0: I think with all the great content you've developed, um, one of the things you should know about Mark is obviously you know from his um, academic background, he is a bright guy and has had a really successful career. But Mark is not one-dimensional. Mark has this great heart and this compassionate, ministering, loving heart that has lifted in me personally when we've gone out to lunch over the years. And I know in his ministry, and I think you'll feel that in the podcast. Um, there's four questions that there's four questions I'm going to ask Mark. So this will be kind of divided into four segments. Um, segment number one. In fact, I'll just I'm not going to go through these right now, listeners. I won't. I'll just do them individually so you don't have to keep track of them. But no, there's four questions I'm going to ask Mark that are roughly 15 or 10 to 15 minute segments. Is that OK if we go into these markers or anything else?
1: Um Maybe two other tidbits. One, Good. Uh,
0: this is a great time for those my, tidbits. My doctoral
1: research had an interesting twist. Uh, it was on honesty in business leaders, uh, so that might catch somebody's interest about honesty and how it relates in the business world. And uh, I've been really fortunate to have been quoted, you know, in Wall Street Journal and Business Week and the L.A. Times and the New York Times. So I've I've had the ideas. Circulated, and it's nice to be on your podcast to see if some of the ideas that I think the Holy Ghost gives me can help some of your listeners.
0: And thank you. And Mark offered a wonderful prayer, and we just pray that Mark has great insights. And I, we will link to his um, Facebook and Instagram accounts in the podcast copy so you can follow the things that Mark shares on a daily basis. Um, question number one for Mark, and um, and now having been single and then married three times and having taught YSA for dec- YSAs for decades, do you have any dating or marriage advice for our YSA listeners?
1: Well, I know that that's a little touchy. Uh, I remember my son always said that every talk in church to YSAs always came back to dating and marriage, and they hated that. But, you know, I've, I've now been married three times, and so— uh, I've been in many single wards, and so I have a little bit of insight and I've been teaching YSAs now for 10 years. And so uh, I, I have a little bit of insight of how to find a spouse, for example. And so one thing I'm a big believer in is in letting your friends and family know that you're interested in meeting somebody of quality because they're, you know blind dates have sort of a bad rap in our society. You know, your friends and family will not want to line you up with their friends because it just isn't sort of a taboo topic. So you need to let them know that, hey, you know, Uncle Uncle Jim, who do you know in your ward that is a really quality person that I should meet? And so you get the word out. It, I look at finding a spouse is like getting a job. It's, it all comes down to networking. Who do you know? You don't get a job by answering the one edge, you get a job by letting it be known that you want to move to a new career, and you let that be known to your friends and your family. And think about it, they have no reason to line you up with a dork. (laughs) So you don't have to worry that they are going to line you up with a horrible blind date, because if they do, that will reflect poorly on them. So they have a vested interest to think and go through their minds and say, oh, who do I know that would be right for Susan? And they will really try to give you a good person they think is a good fit for you. They, there is no reason they want to have you have a miserable time on a blind date. Um, and so, you know, I've been divorced once and widowed once. And so I've been around the block in this dating situation. Uh, and I think you'll know when it's right. I mean, my current wife, uh, Christine, we've now this month been married 20 seven years. And when it works, it just clicks. I mean, we were married. Don't don't follow this advice, everyone. We were married 70 days after we met. But we were in love the first week we met. It just clicked. And so, we've always thought it was strange that people will date for six, nine months, and then they'll say, well, I don't know if this person really gets me. I mean, we think, don't you know that after a date or two? I mean, so... That, that was one thing. We, it, when it clicks, go for it. And please don't be afraid to marry someone that's been divorced. I mean, they have been around the block. They aren't damaged goods. They will bring much more to your marriage than a person that's never been married before. Why? You, you know what mistakes to avoid. You know what irritates a partner. So you'll avoid those with the second partner. And... You'll be a little less black and white. I think in our in our LDS culture, we're a little too strict and black and white in our thinking and it's this way or the highway. And a divorced person will be a little more compassionate, a little more forgiving, a little less likely to, to worry that, oh, we just had our first fight. I'm, we're going to get divorced. You know, that's, that's natural. You're not going to agree with your partner on everything. So there are some great divorced people out there that will make wonderful partners. So, don't turn down uh, a lineup with someone that's been divorced just because of that stereotype that we have. Um, I think uh, also, uh, one of the things I've told my students over the years is your parents really have a long-term vested interest in your happiness. You know, I I found a lot of young people say, oh, mom, oh, dad, you know, know, and they they poo-poo the advice that their parents give them. But I, I try to make them stop and think and say, your mom tells you this because she really thinks what she is telling you will make you more happy. She's not giving you malicious advice to make your life miserable. So, I encourage my young single adult friends to take their parents' advice, you know, maybe it's a little old-fashioned, maybe a little out of date, but they love you. They will love you more than some temporary friends that you might have. They will love you forever, and they honestly think what they tell you will make your life better. So don't just disregard totally what your parents say because they'll have your back when your current BFFs are all gone and moved on. And, you know, they don't... a best friend, you know, doesn't really care how you'll turn out 30 years from now because they're probably not going to be in your life. But your mom or your dad will tell you advice that they think will be help you for your permanent happiness. So that, that's one thing I've noticed. Love that. That. that uh, so that that's some of the dating advice I have. Uh,
0: Talk about just a little bit about um, culturally what it's like to be a divorced man. And what can we do, was that hard for you um, in our culture? I know it's probably hard, obviously, for a marriage, Dan, and you're processing that, but what can we do in our culture to sort of help you and, and, and support you and minister to you during that time?
1: You know, I think one main thing is to still try to be friends and don't let a divorce ruin your relationships with your friends. Um... You know, it's hard to not choose sides, you know, is it the wife's fault, the husband's fault, and who are you going to be friends with when they move on and they have new partners? And so it, it is a delicate little minefield, but I think it it's a great place to practice Christianity, that just like we aren't going to judge other people that have made mistakes in life, we aren't going to judge them for their divorce, and we're going to help them. They need help right now. The best advice I ever got was to go to the temple every week while I was going through my divorce, and uh, just gave some stability and a foundation that kept me on the right track. And you know, I I liked marriage. I liked being married. I neither my divorce nor my 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 widowhood has turned me off for being married. I I, I look at it as sort of a tribute to my deceased wife that I wanted to get married again because we had a good marriage. And so, I I thought it was a tribute to her. And and sometimes, oh, I've seen too many people where their kids sabotage their divorced or their widowed parents' redating experiences. I mean, come on, you're, give your parents a break. They They've been through hell during a divorce. And if they're happy with someone, even if it's a few months after the divorce or the... Or the death, let, don't judge them. Let them have their own experience of when they feel comfortable to start dating again or get married again and be nice to the new spouse. Oh, I have a friend who, who's basically gone through hell because his kids have totally been antagonistic about his remarriage and, and still it's been five or six years that he's been remarried and they still hardly talk to him. I just can't fathom how you can be a good Christian and judge your parents and and keep them from having their own happiness when they've gone through a divorce or, or the death of a spouse. That, that bothers me.
0: Yeah, we could do a whole podcast on this because now you've just flooded my <laughs> mind with questions and I'm going to keep us on track here. But we do sort of have these expectations when someone gets divorced. I love what you said, first of all, about date divorced people. Um, I did date to some divorced people before I married my wife. And I had written off divorced people because that was on my checklist that they shouldn't be married. And then I dated some divorced people and I thought, just like you found, just taught us, their, their perspective, their maturity, their understanding was just drew me towards them. And I didn't see them as damaged goods. I saw that experience as refining them in a wonderful, positive way that added to our marriage, but I never married a divorced person. I just sort of had a wake-up call. The other thing that um, I recognize in our culture, and you probably felt this, is somebody that goes through a divorce and then someone whose wife dies, there seems to be this expectation of time. You shouldn't, you should wait, you know. And so you. I, I don't know how quickly you got married after your divorce or how quickly you got married after your wife died in that car accident, but there seems to be some cultural expectations like you've got to wait a period of time before I'm going to fully bless this because it, it will feel uncomfortable me if it happens too quick and I might judge you. And that's just not my, my job. But any thoughts on any of that?
1: Well, it reminds me exactly about your ministry of breaking down stereotypes about LGBTQ members. And it's the same thing with divorced and death members. I mean, we have these stereotypes that, oh, you have to wait a certain amount of time before you can get remarried and start dating. Why are we imposing that on these people? Why not let them follow the spirit in their own circumstances? And if they want to date six weeks after a death or a divorce, and that that makes them feel good and secure, and they want to do it, Let's let him do it. Why are we imposing some arbitrary outside standards of some amount of time that has to be met before you can do this? Uh, so I hope we break down that barrier, just like you're breaking down a lot of barriers with your other people you have on your podcast.
0: Yeah, that's helpful for me. No one's ever talked about that, but I agree with that. Um, question any more on that topic, Mark, before we go to question two?
1: Um, One thing that's sort of germane to everything we're talking about today is I have kept an Excel spreadsheet of a list of adversities I've gone through. And I updated it before our meeting today. I'm up to 21 in my life. So death and divorce are on there. I've had a life-threatening illness. I've had financial reversals. Um, A lot of what I label is, you know, a real adversity. Real adversity. And... I, I guess I just sort of pinch myself saying I got through 21 things that could have derailed a lot of people, and I'm I'm still alive and kicking. And so I guess that's a message I want to give to your listeners is don't let anything derail you from God and your relationship with Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother and our Savior, and just hang in there. It gets better. I mean, I've been in the darkest times sometimes, and... I could have given it up, but I've clung to the church, I've clung to the gospel, and uh, 21 times I've pulled through.
0: I probably came to your mission farewell and your mission homecoming. I think you're more than two years older, so I was probably getting ready to leave on my own mission when you came home from Switzerland. I probably sat in the 15th ward on Wasatch and listened to you did... My question is, did any of those adversities happen before your mission? I'm assuming they're all post mission. And if you had been if the bishop had walked up to you after your farewell homecoming talk and said, Mark, here are the twenty-one things you're gonna face between no, age no. twenty-one and sixty two. I mean, I kind of go back to our lives just turn out so different than kind of this I don't know what words to use in these younger years. Well, would you have thought if you would saw that t- list of twenty one? Would it just overwhelmed you? Would you have been grateful? Would you have been scared? And are you glad all those twenty one happened? or are you really wish some of them didn't happen? That's a l- about eight questions.
1: I, <laughs> I wish some of them some of them had not happened, and I'm sure glad we have the veil that keeps us from seeing our future. And our patriarchal blessings are really pretty generic and vague at times because, you know, if well, I'll give you an example is. Uh, I, I'm i not able to father children like most men can. And so, my so patriarchal honest. blessing says, strangely, when children are admitted into your home. And it doesn't say when they were born, when you fathered them, et cetera. So, very interesting wording that I now understand, but when I was 19, I had no clue that there was any special meaning to the verb admitted. And so, I... I think Heavenly Father intentionally keeps a lot of things from us because we would be scared if we saw all the things coming. And I I think he intentionally limits the information we need. Like, yeah, we don't have much information on Heavenly Mother, and there must be some good reason for that, that he keeps us focused on this life. And we don't worry about the eternities and all these questions about the Big Bang and You know, he says, just focus on being like Jesus, you know, focus on being kind, focus on being nice. One thing I've I've told my students that I really have liked over the years is I tell them, you know, I'll, I'll use you as an example, Dick, you know, Dick, you are never going to be the brightest. You are never going to be the best looking, but Dick Osler, you can be the kindest person in the world. That is within your capabilities. You have no genetic Constraints to keep you from being nice. So, I challenge my students to, when they graduate, to have people say, That person was the nicest person I had in my class, or That was the nicest person I met at the university. And that is doable for us. But, you know, fashion and beauty and brains, eh, those are all genetically, you know, constrained. That's
0: fascinating. Yeah. That's really insightful. I've never thought of that. That's comforting to someone that got an 18 on their ACT back in the day. <laughs> I, do I, st- I wouldn't have guessed that day. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, we need to move on. But I just have to think um, that God has given us all a foundation that you had after your mission. And even in those early years, um, to have a foundation— in the doctrine of our church and the doctrine of loving heavenly parents and the doctrine of plan of salvation to have the tools to navigate those 21 adversities in a way that line upon line at the, at the right time that you had tools to navigate those to be able to be where you are today on the other side of some of those adversities and the learning and the experience that has come with it. And and I like your point that maybe we didn't, we it's not... For us to see that list of 21 adversities at our homecoming talk, um, that that's not really the way the plan works, um, but mm-hmm. we can get through those and get on the other side. Well, we're,
1: we're just not overly sensitive. I mean, that's why I love your podcast so much is you sensitize us to issues we've never even thought about. For example, when I tell people I've been divorced once and widowed once, everyone says, oh, death. Oh, that must be so hard. And everyone gives me a lot of sympathy over the death. And I stop him and say, no, with our theology, death is easy. We're going to live forever. We're going to have eternal marriages. We're going to see each other again. Death is easy. Divorce is the one you should give me sympathy for. That's the one that goes on for years on this earth life. And oftentimes it is so messy. I mean, death is cut and dried. You know, she was taken in a car accident and I had to move on. Divorce, I had to live with the impact of divorce for, you know, 10 years. So we just aren't really good at being sensitive to what really is bothering other people. And that's why you do what your title of your podcast is. You listen and you learn and you realize, oh, death isn't nearly as bad as divorce.
0: That's fascinating. And what a unique life that you've experienced, both of those. I don't know if I know anybody off the top of my head that has walked a similar road.
1: Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've lost a parent, both parents now a spouse and a child. And so that, that is a little unique. But I've God has been there for me. I mean, I, I could have crumbled. And I don't know why, but he has been there for me. And I think he'll be there for everyone who keeps trying. Uh, one of my favorite Proverbs in French is, Si tu t'ed le ciel t'aura. If you help yourself, God will help you. And I've found that, that when you make a couple steps toward God, he comes running towards you, and he is t- just waiting for us to turn towards him and just make any little efforts, and he champions and cheers all our little efforts, but he doesn't force us to turn towards him. He, we have to turn towards him first and take a few little baby steps into the darkness sometime, and then He the support just comes rolling in in ways we can't even imagine. I mean, you can't even begin to see all the great things God has in store for us if we just hang on and don't jump from the good ship Zion.
0: Love that. All right, we're going to go to question two. You have some insights on covenants. Can you share what you have learned with us?
1: We throw out the word covenants in the church. I've heard it my whole life, and it wasn't until a couple of years ago I realized— what is it? And, and I really had the light bulb go on about what a covenant is. You know, we, we have the primary definition that a covenant is a two-way promise. And I thought, well, does that really motivate anyone? <laughs> and so, I really wanted to think more about covenants. And as a, a business analyst, I realized the world uses covenants all the time, but they don't call them covenants. They call them contracts. And so, a covenant is when we do something and the other side in turn gives us promises or or blessings or something. I, I compare it to three different business analogies. The first one is a toll road. I, I don't have to take the toll road. I'm not forced to take the toll road, but I pay my money and the toll and I get there a lot faster than going on the byways with all the the slow streets and the villages and the stoplights. And so, God uses covenants to make our lives easier if we want. I also compare it to uh, the cable subscription that I have. I I can have, you know, dial-up internet if I want, but if I want high-speed internet to make my life easier... I pay a monthly subscription to the cable company, and I get high-speed internet. And so, I pay my fee, and they give me high-speed internet. I do something, I get something in return. And I think that's what covenants are. Covenants are God's way of giving us additional blessings when we commit to Him and are on His team. He's not forcing us to be on his team. He's not forcing us to make covenants with him. But when we do, we open the floodgates of blessings that can roll into our lives. My my third analogy is I'm I'm a Marriott Hotel frequent award guy. And when I show up, they recognize me. They give me perks. They give me upgrades. They give me bonuses because I have pledged my loyalty to Marriott over the other hotel chains. And so they, in turn, give me things that they don't give to the, the guy that just happens to go in the front door and ask for a room. He's not going to get any special deals or favors or perks or blessings. But Heavenly Father, he loves everybody, but it reminds me of the, of the definition. If you look, this is probably probably my number one thing I tell to my students is the definition of prayer in the Bible dictionary it says that there are blessings there that god is already willing to grant to us that are made conditional on our asking for them and so it reminds me of the idea of having some skin in the game god wants us to have some skin in the game and then he just pours the blessings upon us and you know it reminds me of malachi where we will not have room enough to receive it that he will open the windows of heaven and pour us out blessings if we bring, we bring tithes and offerings into the storehouse. And so, God loves everyone. I, I compare it to God loves everybody. And this concept gets me in more trouble with some students than any other concept because they think everyone wants to think that God loves everybody equally. And I say No. And that—listen, don't shut off the podcast right now when you hear that. God loves everybody to like a level three, but he reserves blessings levels four to twelve for those who keep covenants and have made promises to him. Then he is justified in giving them more blessings, because otherwise, if he gives all these blessings randomly to everyone, no matter how they behave— it's just totally arbitrary. But when we follow his commandments and do our part, he then is allowed, I think under the law of justice, this is sort of just my interpretation, he is then allowed to open up and give us all these other blessings that are made conditional on our behavior and our asking for them. It, it reminds me a little bit of a a kid on Christmas Day. You know, if he just unwraps all the presents really quickly... And you know, by the end of Christmas afternoon, he's broken half of them and stopped playing with them, and he doesn't really have much interest in the Christmas presents that he was just given. But when that kid had a part-time job or saved up his money and went and bought some of those things that he wanted himself, and he has some ownership interest in those, he takes so much better care, and he has so much more concern for their well-being, and he protects them and takes good care. And just doesn't throw them away. If, if, if God just randomly gave everybody every blessing without our being involved in it, I think it just won't work as well. So that's why I'm so excited now about covenants. Covenants are cool. Covenants aren't uh, oppressive things that we want to avoid. I seek out covenants because that's God's way of channeling more blessings to me. So I want to keep covenants.
0: I love that. Um, are, are there specific blessings? Or are there specific examples of that in your own life that you want to share with our listeners?
1: No. <laughs> That's okay. Let me give an example, though, that might relate to your BYU or Utah fans. I mean, think of the Crimson Club at the University of Utah or the Cougar Club at the Y. They get special perks, seats, trips, tickets, Because they have pledged a certain amount of loyalty and donations to those athletic programs. So I don't get the Crimson, you know, club perks and and bling and and seats because I haven't given anything to the U like that. And I just think that's, that's the way it works in the heavens, too, is when we give our loyalty to the Crimson Club or the Cougar Club, we get rewarded back. When we give our loyalty and our love to God, we get blessings like that back. Uh, and I as uh, you asked me what I've seen in my life, you know, obviously I've overcome 21 adversities. So I can't ask for much more instead of wallowing in and having one tidal wave of adversity just take me out. I've had, you know, financial reversals and then I've had financial successes that I didn't deserve either, but I think, you know, when I have some skin in the game and I'm going to the temple and I'm trying to, to follow Jesus and do those things, It now, now you got to be careful here. I've talked on, on money before at Education Week, you know, like the law of tithing. Just because you keep the law of tithing doesn't mean you're going to be rich. There's all these other blessings that come from that. It, it reminds me of the similar blessings you get from the Word of Wisdom my father-in-law died of lung cancer, and he never smoked one cigarette in his life, and yet he died of the smoker's disease. (laughs) You know? So God has to let there be some exceptions, because if everyone who joined the LDS church immediately won the lottery, what would happen? Our baptismal rates would skyrocket.
0: Would we have to pay tithing on the lottery too? That could help.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But people would obviously join the church not because they love Jesus and want to follow him, but because all those Mormons, they, they get rich when they get baptized. And so God has to let good people keep the word of wisdom and still get lung cancer, and good people pay their tithing their whole life, and they still struggle financially. So there God, God has to let there be some exceptions, but enough people have kept the commandments and seen the blessings come into their life that you look at and say, Oh, what should I do? Oh, I'm going to try God. I'm going to put, his, put him to the test and see if he keeps his side of the bargain. Because that, that's one of our definitions of God, that God keeps his word. So, if God says, bring all the tithes into the storehouse and see if I do not open up the windows of heaven and pour you out of blessing. I mean, I love the verb there, pour, in Malachi chapter 3. He doesn't say, I'll dribble you out of blessing. I will trickle you out of blessing. He says, pour. So, if you keep the law of tithing and don't feel like God ever poured any blessings into your life, you're going to be able to go to the pearly gates and the judgment bar and say, God, uh, you didn't keep your word on this, and he's not going to let you do that. So, he's going to come through and be there for you and support you, maybe ways you don't anticipate and not necessarily in the time that you want it to come. You know, we all want to have our Amazon packages here the next day. And I think we're getting that way in life a little bit. We want blessings from God now. And we have to remember the law of the harvest that I've always thought farmers are the most faithful people in the world because they take their hard-earned money and buy seeds and fertilizer. And what do they do with them? They bury them in the ground. We, We put garbage in the ground. And they take their basically their money and put it in the ground, and then they work all spring and summer in the hope that they get a harvest in the fall. And so the law of the harvest is so crucial in life. We, we cannot expect that we're going to be blessed immediately, but I have seen in my life and in looking around, if you keep the commandments of God, he supports you and he blesses you in the long run, and in ways you won't even understand he's blessed you until later on. I I think one day I'm excited to have my final interview with God and have him roll back the videotape of my life. And he's going to show me about 20 times I should have been killed in a car accident because I wasn't paying attention. And I think he saved me so many times from being in a car accident. And I didn't think to thank him because I didn't know... I was supposed to have an accident because I was thinking about someone else, something else and suddenly I realized I've been watching the road for the last five minutes. You know, so I think he saves us so many times and we don't even thank him for it because we didn't know anything happened, you know. Love if that. nothing ever happens to him, you can't say, Heavenly Father, thank you for keeping me from that because we didn't know it was going to happen.
0: <laughs> I love that segment. Talk about, um, I think I know the answer to this question, but the 21 adversities that came into your life, I don't think from what I know about you, any of those came into your life because you weren't keeping the covenants. And so the point I'm, and you can answer that, but I think I think keeping the covenants gave you the tools to get through the adversities. So covenant keeping doesn't prevent adversity, but it, it allows us to get through the adversity. Just talk about that.
1: Well, you look at the lives of The prophets that's why i think the scriptures are so important the scriptures are the journal entries of the prophets and previous leaders and so they just write down and you look at them and you say wow president kimball he had you know major surgery he could barely talk and you know they had financial reversals and i remember president nelson in his biography he's he's on the floor racked in pain because he couldn't save a few of his patients lives and they died and his wife says go on keep on going on and so I think I've I mean I've had a privileged life we've talked about white privilege that's in the news these days I think I haven't had too many bad things happen to me before that I had to really repent of uh, which is sort of unfortunate um I think repentance is helpful because then you can testify of the power of repentance so I'm sort of glad that I've had a few missteps in my life where I've had to repent because I now can testify of the principle of repentance if you if you never do anything wrong, how can you have a testimony of that principle so but i I've been blessed to to have just had some tough times when I thought I was doing right I mean and bad things happen to good people uh, uh I'd say the next favorite thing I tell my students is read Alma 14. And remember when Alma and Amulek have gone into the town, they're missionaries, and they're coming to the town and converted some people. And then the people that didn't like that, they drove the men out of town and they built a big bonfire and threw the women and children believers into the fire. And then they brought Alma and Amulek from the jail to the, to the fire and said, look what happened to you, see? like These people, because they believed you because you were a missionary and came to our town and taught them this, this gospel of yours, they're getting killed. And I can't imagine anything worse as a missionary to see your converts being killed because you came to town. But remember, uh, Amulek wants to call down the power of heaven and stop this great tragedy from happening. And Alma says, oh, the Spirit says, let it happen, because there has to be hard evidence of the bad things that people do. If God stopped everybody from doing any bad thing, then those people will get to the judgment day, and they'll—Heavenly Father will say, well, you're a murderer. You were, you threw those people in the fire, and he'll say, no, I didn't. I— it was all a big joke, Heavenly Father. We, it was just a prank. We we built this big bonfire, and we took him right to the edge, and we sort of acted like we were going to throw him in. But I'm not a murderer. I never would have thrown him in. See, remember, you there was a force field around that fire. We didn't kill anyone that day. So I'm not a murderer. We, it was just a big joke. And so God has to bite his lip and let bad things happen to decent, good people so there is hard evidence against people of what their really true despicable hearts will envision. And so that's why those bad people got to throw the believers, the women and children, into the fire so they were absolutely hard evidence against them that they were killers.
0: It's a really good segment. Mm -hmm. I like your visual of Heavenly Father needs to bite his lip. Um, I've imagined uh, yeah, I mean you look at, I look at Hitler, and I was thinking about, you know, Hitler had, our listeners know this history, and you do, Mark, better than I did, but I think there were some near assassination attempts that were almost successful, and I just have wondered, God knowing that six million Jews and countless lives would be negatively affected, why didn't you just allow that to happen? But I guess in this great plan, and we're just seeing a segment of the eternal plan, that we're here and this mortal experience that's incredibly unfair and unjust. And in the grand plan of salvation that we understand, it'll all be made fair and just, Um, just like in that story from Alma 14.
1: Yeah. That's why, you know, evidence is so important to me. Do you want to move into that right now?
0: (laughs) Yes, so Mark is helping me do a good job keeping track on time. Question three, you love the E-word, evidence. Why is evidence so important?
1: Well, our society is fascinated with detective and legal dramas. You know that every every TV station has two or three detective shows. We like Monk and Psych and, and Sherlock and everything. And so, I've always loved detectives. My childhood hero was Freddie, the detective. And so, I've always loved that. And I've come to realize as I've gotten older how important evidence is, not only in the judicial realm, but in the spiritual realm. If you think about it, in in civil or criminal proceedings, uh, in criminal, for example, you have to convict the person beyond a reasonable doubt. And in a civil trial, it's just, who has the preponderance of the evidence on their side, a, ma- a majority of the evidence? Which way do you do you judge the case? And I think there's a really good parallel between that and our spiritual lives and and some other things. For example, like uh, let me give an example of my marriage. Is I've now been married to Christine for almost ten thousand days, and so that's a pretty good lump of evidence to decide. Let's see how good is the marriage, and. 9,990 of those days were pretty good. I really enjoyed being married 9,990 days, 10 days, they were pretty tough. And so I look at that, uh, it reminds me of a a little balance like you used in high school chemistry. You put one on one side and which way does it balance up or down to, to see if it's equal. And so, I put 9,990 good days on one side of the balance and 10 bad days on the other side. And I say to myself, should I get divorced? These 10 days were really bad. And I thought about divorcing on those 10 days. And then I thought, hold it. Why am I getting rid of my marriage when I've only had 10 bad days and I've had 9,990 good days? That doesn't make sense. And so, I use that same analogy with spiritual things. I have had, for example, Probably 500 experiences where the Holy Ghost has whispered to me or just tingled me when I have read something that Joseph Smith has taught or read or, or written. So I've had 500 little mini witnesses that Joseph Smith's a prophet. There's probably three or four other things about Joseph Smith I don't understand. So I put 500 mini witnesses about Joseph Smith on one side of the balance. And three or four things about like, you know, what's this deal with Joseph and polygamy? And I look at that and say, am I going to throw out my testimony of Joseph Smith because of four things I don't understand and throw out 500 witnesses that he was a divine instrument? And so that's that idea of evidence is you weigh the evidence and whatever is the majority, you go with that. You don't get hung up on one little thing about polygamy or something like this and throw out your whole testimony because of one doubt or question that you can't yet resolve and you forget about all the hundreds of other witnesses you've had in your life. And so that's the message I I hope, especially your your listeners that are struggling with, with some really tough issues, I hope they weigh that and say, well, for 30 years, I've had all these witnesses in primary and young men's and church and reading on my own and on my mission and a pile of evidence that the church is real and it's loving and caring and good. And a few times the brethren get it wrong and we make mistakes and my bishop didn't say the right words to me and I went out of the office mad at him, you know, a few of those. So you weigh the few and you put the doubts on one side and compare the mountain of evidence to the little molehill of times you were offended, or you just don't understand why the church does it this way, or you don't understand this policy, or... And so you just compare the evidence, you you look at it. It reminds me, I have a friend, he said, don't be obsessed with a few weeds in your garden and neglect the beautiful flowers plants are already there. And I think that's just a great image to not obsess over the few things that are wrong in your garden and you just miss the beauty that's there. And so I I hope everyone who listens to this thinks back and rereads their journal and rereads all the times that God was there for them. And it gives them hope that they'll get through this current crisis they're in. I guess that's of these 21 adversities I've had, I look at that and say, God has got me through 21. I know I'm going to have another three or four before I die, but I have hope that he will get me through those again because he's done it 21 times before. And it's like that farmer, you know, some years you have a famine or you have a, a drought and you don't get the big harvest that you had hoped on. But you've had 20 or 30 years as a farmer where 28 out of the 30 years you had a good harvest so you plant again the following spring because you have hope that it will work out again and when it doesn't you don't throw up and say i don't like this farming thing i'm going to get out of it you you look and say i've had 28 years of a good harvest i've had two years when we had a little too much drought or some locusts or crickets or something and you weigh that and say 28 times it worked. two times it didn't i have hope that it's going to do it again. I'm going to try one more time. And, you know, it may not work out a third time, but I have a pretty good faith that it will work out. And, th- and that's, that's the basis of evidence for me, is you, you weigh it and you see the evidence. That's, that's why we keep journals, I think. I, I used to think that journals are for our grandkids and people to read our, our, our descendants. I think they're us, they're for us to reread those experiences we had in previous years when god was there for us he 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 solved our problem he answered our prayers and he will do that again that's journals are for us to build our own faith and to remember how good god has been to us now not for our grandchildren to remember when grandpa did this and god was there for him i I think we we need to focus on rereading our journals more often
0: love that segment. I love the power of evidence. One question before we go to the next, are there favorite evidences you have um, when you go to this weighing the evidence of Joseph Smith that are key evidences for you personally is that Joseph Smith's a prophet.
1: Oh, I have too many to even share one or two de- there I have 500 pieces of evidence about Joseph. I I've loved this year studying the Book of Mormon because it just re-solidifies what an amazing deep book it is. I, I love the Book of Mormon. I, I remember I was at a sealing once and President Benson's grandson, son was the sealer. And he reminded us in the sealing that President Benson said, you should study the Book of Mormon every day. And I came out of that sealing and I thought, I can do that. I can study the Book of Mormon every day. And that was in December of 2002. And I have tried now to study the Book of Mormon now for over 17 years daily. And my testimony of the Book of Mormon has just, just magnified it, just amazing, because I put the effort into it. I, as an analyst, I read and analyze. That's what my scripture analyst uh, podcast or, or uh, uh, Instagram posts are, is I look at a verse and say, This is an amazing verse. Have you ever thought of it this way before? And I just see all these new things unfold. It's so deep. I, my testimony in the Book of Mormon has grown so much and and that's probably my basic belief in Joseph Smith. I, I personally cannot wait to be Joseph Smith's ministry brother. You know, the old, I want to be his home teacher, but we have a different term now. So I want to be Joseph Smith's neighbor. He's the kind of guy I want to hang around with. His thoughts blow my mind. You know, I, I'm not a a superficial person. I love going deep and Joseph Smith was deep, deep, deep. I, you know, I'm not going to talk about the weather with Joseph Smith. I'm going to talk about the mysteries of the universe with Joseph Smith. And that's why I want to be, I want to be like him. If he, if Joseph Smith's in hell, I'd rather be in hell.
0: I love that, and I love your—I wish our listeners could just—I think they can sense your enthusiasm through the podcast, but you love the Book of Mormon, um, and I just can imagine you as a YSA instructor, or an institute teacher, and just bringing that passion. Um, it's one of your gifts of teaching, but it's more than just teaching. It's, it's in your heart. It's in your blood. There's great passion there. And um, I love the challenge that you got in that ceiling— and what you've done, and the beauty of the Book of Mormon. My wife and I were reading, we're a little behind on the schedule. She's not, but I am. And we I was just pondering the name Anti-Nephi-Lehi's, that this group of Lamanites took on that name, and I thought, and then of course they became the people of Ammon, but I was just thinking, why and maybe you know the answer, you know, it was just interesting that that was in there. I never really thought of that before. It's kind of a complicated name, and
1: yeah, um, I, it's just
0: another layer of the Book of Mormon that for the first time actually pondered how did they come into that name and is there a an understanding of that name you know, in a translation? Yes. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Well, yes, the, the Book of Mormon central people, the professors at BYU have studied that and what I just heard this last week talking about it is anti that we think of as being against is a Greek term and Greek wasn't known at the time of the Book of Mormon and anti in Hebrew has a whole different meaning. It means belonging to or being part of. So they were part of the Nephi Lehi's and not the Lamanites anymore. So they weren't anti-Nephi, they were part of Nephi. And so it's a anti there, it comes from Hebrew, not Greek.
0: That's cool. And my wife English. actually suggested that since she had done her reading and I then wondered a little bit why they took on the name Lehi, not just Nephi. And I wondered if that was to honor their forefather, Lehi, and and the humility. But I love what you just taught. Um, and that added insight. And how could Joseph Smith have made that up or known that? Um, so no, it's just this, so this evidence. Yeah. Let's go anything more on this one before we go to the last section.
1: No, let's, okay. let's move to the last one.
0: The last question is you have coined the phrase first nephi 17 syndrome what does that mean
1: if you remember that part of the book of mormon nephi has been commanded to build the boat and he lived in jerusalem which was landlocked he maybe had never even seen a boat and so his brothers were maybe justifiably question him and say, nephi can you do this but We've seen, you know, all throughout First Nephi, he was a great person. He
0: just went on YouTube like my kids did and learned how to build a boat.
1: <laughs> and so, in First Nephi 17, he's building the boat, and his brothers are a little antagonistic and dragging their feet, and they go after him. They see that they've got his goat, and they he's in a depressed state. And they see, ha-ha, Nephi, see, we knew you couldn't build a boat. And they say, Nephi we see that you are lacking in judgment. And I read that and thought, oh my gosh, that's totally 180 degrees off base. I mean, if we were wanting to pick a person from the scriptures that we think had good judgment, Nephi would be near the top of the list. And yet that did not stop his brothers from accusing him of being the exact opposite of who he knew in his heart he was. And so, that's this idea of the first Nephi 17 syndrome. I think one of the hardest tests or adversities people have to face is when they are accused of being the exact opposite of who they are. And look how it, it, it happened to Jesus. Remember, they said, Jesus, you're doing your miracles based on the power of Beelzebub. And you're a wine bibber. And you're cavorting with prostitutes. And you're, you know, you're drunk totally off-base lies about Jesus. And yet, that did not stop them from throwing them out at Jesus. And, you know, we read in the scriptures that Satan's the father of lies. Satan is a master at getting to people to lie for him. He got hundreds of people to lie about Joseph Smith, and they lied about the Savior. His brothers lied about Nephi, and one of the hardest things people will face is when they are accused of being the exact opposite of who they are. And so I I think that is something that some of your LBGTQ members have to face is no matter what their sexual orientation is, they can still be fantastic disciples of Jesus Christ, but because of that stereotype, people look at them and say, oh, you must be lacking in faith. And so that that is a 1st a Nephi 17 syndrome moment where they know they love Jesus and they love the church and they want to follow Jesus. And this struggle that they're facing is so hard. And yet someone just whitewashes them and say, well, if you're, if you're gay, you can't be a good member of the church. And they know that's not true. So that's 180 degrees off base. And so that, that's where I think this test I, I really think it's the hardest test you'll ever face is when you are accused of being the opposite of who you know you are and I've seen it come up in my own life I've seen it come up with friends and family members and it's just a really hard test of life and uh, I, I encourage everyone to don't let the words thrown out by by liars knock you off from who you know in your heart of hearts you really are. You know whether you love Jesus or not. You know whether you're a good Christian. You know whether you love and Jesus is your personal Savior or not. And don't let anyone throw you know, slime at you and let it stick or not. You know, you know whether it's true or not and you don't need to you know, fight it because you know in your heart of hearts they're lying. I mean, look at it. Potiphar's wife lied about Joseph in Egypt uh, a lot of a lot of people have had lies thrown at them and and that just happens today lots of people lie it's easy to lie to save face and not be embarrassed and um, and so we need to hang in there when people lie about us and just take it
0: I love that, Mark, and um, I've had some of that in my own life. I wrote down the words, opposite of who you are, and I thought about, you know, all of us, you listeners, me, Mark included, we hear things sometimes that are not accurate things about us, and sometimes when they're just maybe 10 degrees off, it doesn't hurt as much as, to your point, if they're 180 degrees off, and they're taking, like an example of Nephi, one of his greatest strengths, and turning it into just the opposite, how painful that is. And I like your advice to those when that happens. You've got to separate yourself from those kind of experiences and got to go deep with who you are and remember who you are. And And if I heard a podcast, it was Steve Young talking to the BYU Management Society, and he was talking about tools to have good relationships. But he did open the door if it's a toxic relationship you may have to end that relationship. Nephi didn't really end that relationship with his siblings. I don't know if that counted as a long-term toxic relationship. Maybe it did when eventually they separated in yeah. lands.
1: Yeah, remember later in, I think, it's Second Nephi, where he prayed to God, you know, help me with my brothers. And he probably thought, you know, maybe God will soften Laman Lemuel's heart. And after a while, God said, nope, get out of there. Yeah. Totally, the answer he was not thinking would come from God. He, really he thought God would intervene and mend those family relationships. And God said, no, that's not the way we're going to do it. And you
0: would even think once they got to the promised land and all this was behind them that they could come together. And that was probably Nephi's hope. And so I do think sometimes the way to healing, as Steve Young suggested in this podcast I listen and you're suggesting here in this scriptural story, is to separate yourself. And that is the road to healing in some situations. So perhaps a divorce is part of that. Um, And just, I think the reality of some relationships is you need to do that.
1: Oh, and that reminds me is don't be afraid to get married because you think, oh, I might get divorced. I mean, that happens these days. Don't, don't be fearful about going forward with marriage and worrying that, oh, so many people get divorced these days and just never make a decision and stay single your whole life. Give it a try. Go for it. Follow the, the bottom line in life is following the promptings of the Spirit. And if the prompting says, marry this person, you do it. And then a few years later, if they change or you change or something happens and you have to get a divorce, that's life. But don't put off getting married because you're worried that we might get divorced one day. And I I see that happening with a lot of our, our millennials that they're getting married later and later. And it's probably because they're worried about making a mistake. And I hope they go for it.
0: I like that. And I've always thought about faith-based decisions versus fear-based decisions. And there's sometimes fear-based decisions that keep us from doing the right thing. Or, But I think faith-based decisions are exactly what you just taught there. Um, and pragmatically, I like the way you just opened the door that, yeah, it, it's possible that as you go forward in faith and make a faith-based decision based on the very best you know, that it could end divorce in five years. And then you sort of say, okay— You know, your life's not over. You'll move forward and you'll be okay versus just never trying or never sort of being willing to faithfully make a decision or faithfully try.
1: Yeah, I was married for nine years with my first wife, and I don't regret that. Yes, we got divorced, but I look back now, and most of those years were really good. We had a great experience, and then just things changed. And so I would probably get married again to her. Uh, you know, it's not like oh, uh, you know, you're going to get divorced nine years from now. You better not marry her. I probably still would have done it, even if I know had known we were going to get divorced. That's cool. You got to do what God wants you to do in the moment, and not, not come up with all your rational, you know, um, man-made ideas to not do it. You, you got to take those few steps into the darkness. And go for it, and then watch and wait to see the hand of God revealed in your life. Because so many times he does not give you advanced notice. Oh, here's what I'm going to do for you, Dick. Uh, here's what's going to happen in 2021 for you. And, you know, you know, he doesn't. I think, as you said earlier, it would be fearful if he had told me about those 21 adversities. So he keeps all that pretty mum and... uh I go forward and I deal with one thing and I do the best I can and I see that, you know, doing it his way works out better than doing it my way most of the time. And so I follow his path and sometimes I have to wait a long time to see his resolution come. You know, I think sometimes, well, if we'd done it my way, we could have been through this mess and there were things I had to learn by letting it go on longer than I would have wanted it to.
0: I'm really... I really love what you said about your nine year marriage and that ended in a divorce. And, and I think you'd answer this question this way. Do you look at that as a failure then? Because the way you described it, you just sort of pragmatically said we did the best we could. It ended. I would have done it all over again. Um, and so you, I felt like you were saying it wasn't a failure experience it ended in divorce but the overall experience was the right thing for me and my former wife and I'm a better person because that marriage prepared me for the rest of my life but, but I don't want to put words in your mouth my friend
1: oh, I, I, I think we don't know the beginning from the end our our ways our thoughts are not God's thoughts and you know that's that's why in my BYU Hawaii video that you can see on YouTube You know, make God your business partner because he can see who would you rather have guide you in your life than the smartest person in the whole universe. (laughs) So you team up with God and what a team that can be. Because if I just want to do it my own way, I'm going to have so many more failures and so many more false starts and dead ends. But, you know, God's going to take me by the hand if I make him my partner and guide me in ways that I can't even imagine. I mean, God is, he's the smartest person ever, so he can do it so much better than we can even imagine it can be. And my life in so many ways has turned out better than I could have ever done on my own. So yes, I've had 21 adversities, but it has has still been a great life. I wouldn't go back and probably change anything and avoid any of those adversities. I, I don't know about that. I hope, I don't think I would have wanted that. My my wife uh, right now, Christine, has been divorced twice. So this is nice. that we, This is our third marriage for both of us. Interesting. And, and she jokes, she says, do you think I stood in the divorce line twice in heaven and said, oh, yeah, I, I want to be divorced twice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I love the conversations you and your wife are having and can have, and you can have with so many others. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you have anything else? I've got another question for you, but do you have anything else you want to share with our listeners?
1: I just, am anxious to read your book. I'm I'm glad you've had so many podcasts with such a diverse cast of, of interviewees. Uh, I learned so much. Uh, some of those have stuck out in my mind and really changed me. I'm, you know, I'm an old white guy and Same. I'm a better person because I have heard so many different points of view on your podcast that I'd never even thought of before. Uh, you know, like you, you had the, the one lady who was was raped at BYU Law School. Yeah. And she said, you know, I prayed for God to protect me, and he didn't. And people pray to find their lost keys, and they find them. And that's so insignificant compared to wow. me being protected from a rape and boy, that has just stayed with me. That has been one of the main thoughts in my mind the last couple of months that I've been mulling no. it over. and I just think there are so many good insights that we need to listen, learn, and then the love comes just when we don't jump to conclusions and we, we are patient. Like right now with this, this whole racial crisis we're going through right now, I don't know the answer, but I hope, I'm a better person, and I'm less biased a year from now than I am today. that, that That's my hope. I, do, I don't think I'm going to cure my biases tomorrow, but I just hope little by little I'm a better, kinder, softer, gentler person a year from now.
0: That just put tears in my eyes for some reason, Mark, because you are one of the brightest guys I know at a point in your life when you could have said, I I know what we should be doing, and I have the answer. But the humility in your early 60s with all that you know to say what you said just strikes me as, as so appropriate and so thoughtful and hard to do for us men. Oh. Um, and I, don't, I just admire what you said, and it's a template for what we all should be doing in this time um, as we try to understand um, just what's going on in our country and it can be kind of threatening to us it can oh. cause us to wonder am i part of the problem are there things within me that i need to change and that can be hard for us to look inward sometimes but i just admire the humility you just shared and you and the guests have been awesome on the pod- podcast and you're one of them now i'm fascinated with this idea of you ministering with Joseph Smith and wanting to talk deep stuff that's a cool concept
1: we're going to be neighbors
0: Um, tell me, my question is, who else in um, church history, a a prior, a current leader, somebody from the Book of Mormon, you just love also to spend time with and just talk to?
1: I have downloaded all of Elder Maxwell's conference of BYU devotional talks and a lot of Elder Holland's conference and devotional talks at BYU, and I play those in my car when I'm commuting, and I love those are two of my idols right now. I, I want to uh, I want to play a, f- a round of golf with Elder Holland, Elder Maxwell, and Joseph Smith. Uh, that'd be would we probably wouldn't get much golfing done? We'd probably sit on the first tee and just you know have a deep conversation. But I, I would rather be in hell with Elder Holland and Elder Maxwell and Joseph Smith than anywhere else. I mean. Those are the kind of people I want to be around. I have, I'm now, I've been around the business world my whole life. I've seen a lot of things. I've lived in seven different states. I've met, I, I estimate, I've probably met thirty or forty thousand people from a hundred different countries, different religions, and I've never found anybody better than some of these great Latter Day Saints. There's some bad apple Latter Day Saints. I mean, every ward has some bad apples. But overall, I weigh the evidence. I say, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints makes better people. And those are the kind of people I want to hang out with. Even if it turns out we got something wrong and we're not the, the true church of Jesus Christ, I still want to hang out with Elder Holland and Elder Maxwell and Joseph Smith. That's, that's the kind of person I want to be. I, I think that's who I want to be.
0: If there's a listener, perhaps a younger listener, that didn't live during Elder Maxwell's time, just take a few minutes and introduce Elder Maxwell to any of our listeners that aren't aware of him. And my wife is like you. She is listening to everything she can get her hands on from Elder Maxwell.
1: Elder Maxwell was just a great blend of spirit and mind. He had a way with words. He could take tough topics and... With words, not, he wasn't a story guy. I usually like stories. Like my podcast or my, uh, my video on YouTube, I tell like six different stories about the lives of the general authorities. So I, I like stories because stories stick. But Elder Maxwell wasn't like that. He, he's the kind of guy you would replay his words four or five times over and over again until you thought, oh, I see what he means there. Oh, you know, he was just so deep. It, it reminds me of the Book of Mormon. and you, know, you, you reread the Book of Mormon and you see whole new layers that you've missed the first 15 times you've studied it. And uh, so, I would encourage any of your listeners that want to go deep with doctrine. The, the Lord's doctrine is as deep as you want to go. It You can never get to the bottom of the well of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It it will open up new layers of the onion as you peel back and go deeper. and. Elder Maxwell was able to do that, and so that's why I resonate so much with him. Is he says things that make the atoms of my spirit vibrate. Uh, that, that's what I personally think is the is the uh, the birdie in the bosom. I think those are the molecules of my spirit getting. Excited and vibrating and causing some friction and throwing off some actual physical heat because they are so excited to have that spiritual wavelength that they're feeling from what I'm hearing from Elder Maxwell, and so you know I I can I can hardly wait I you know I think Elder Holland he has a good chance of being the senior apostle if his health stays good because he has you know a gap about 10 years before his next senior apostle. And I I can't really wait till he's the senior apostle. And uh, I just think we'll see some amazing things when he's there. And every prophet has done amazingly. I mean, we didn't know Elder Nelson very well before he became prophet. And now suddenly, we've all had an amazing time with him these last two and a half years. I mean, we love him and he's just done amazing things to move the church forward. And we could not have foreseen that. But you know, there's just a few that I have my favorites, and it's
0: okay. I think we all have favorites, and they reach us in different ways. I think that's that's great. Um, Thanks, Mark. I've been personally uplifted by you, your testimony, your insights, the unique life mission that you've had, the 21 adversities, the faith um, as you've navigated those, the power of covenants. Nephi 17 syndrome there's just hundreds of nuggets in this podcast and do you want to tell people we'll put it in the podcast description how they can find your Facebook and Instagram
1: just search for scripture analyst conference analyst on I do the same post on Instagram and then just cut paste it on Facebook so it's not your
0: personal Facebook it's we're not looking for Mark Matheson on Instagram or Facebook we're looking for scripture
1: analyst conference analyst all one word mashed together i have about you know 3 or 4000 followers right uh, one thing else i do is i go through instagram and there's a lot of people that post other good things and i make comments on their postings because too too often on instagram people just you know say oh yes i agree oh i like that oh you know they're not saying anything of of depth to challenge or to take the comment on the instagram post deeper so I've, I've felt a real calling, just like you have a a calling with your podcasting here. I I make five or six other comments a day on other people's posts on Instagram that are religiously oriented to try and people say, now is that really true? You know, you're saying this, but is that right? You know, and I I want to prick people to not just be superficial about their spirituality. I I see one of my missions in life is to take people to a little deeper spiritual dive
0: I love that thank you my friend Mark Matheson um, great insights and I hope more of our listeners connect with you on Facebook and Instagram but on behalf of all of our listeners thank you for what you've shared today it's been uplifting and thank you our listeners this is Richard Osler signing up on another episode of listen learn and love <music>